Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Guest Don Norman is director of the Design Lab at the University of California, San Diego, co-founder of the Nielsen Norman Group, a member of the National Academy of Engineering, IDEO fellow, and former vice president of Apple. He helps companies make products more enjoyable, understandable, and profitable. His books include Emotional Design, Living with Complexity, and an expanded revised edition of The Design of Everyday Things. He can be found at jnd.org. In this podcast, Don talks about what's changed and what's stayed the same over time in relation to how we think about and implement design. And now your host, Laura Federoff. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk to you. So you first wrote Design of Everyday Things in 1988, and a lot has changed and a lot has stayed the same with design. So I wanted to start the conversation with the things that have stayed the same and maybe even something that has surprised you that has stayed the same. The book was published in 1988, 25 years ago. What has stayed the same is people. Basically, the psychological principles of how people interact with one another, with the world, have been true for thousands and thousands of years. And maybe will be true for a few more years, and we can talk about why that might change. That means that the, the book, which had primarily principles of how people interact with technology, is mostly the same. All the fundamental parts of the book are unchanged. The thing that changed in a minor way is my ability to explain things, and there was at least one major concept in the book that I know people have a lot of trouble with. It's called affordances, and so I tried to simplify it by adding a new distinction, which I call signifiers. Affordances tell you kind of the actions you can do in the world on with the physical objects that exist. It's a relationship. Relationships are hard to understand, so I added signifiers, which are signals that say, hey, this doorknob is a signal of this is what you should grasp. It doesn't tell you what you should do once you've grasped it, whether you should turn it or push it or pull it or lift it or slide it, but it still says grasp here. So that's the signifier component. So that's what stayed the same, everything about principles. Now, the technology has changed dramatically, and therefore the way we apply these principles have somewhat changed. The principles are the same, but because we interact no longer with just a keyboard or with buttons or we interact by gestures, for example, or just by being someplace. We don't even realize we're interacting. That had to be changed. The examples had to be changed. The original edition of the book didn't speak about emotion. Uh, we didn't really understand emotion, we being the scientific community in 1988. And today we have tremendous advances in our understanding. Uh, so much so that actually along the way I wrote a whole book about it called Emotional Design. So I was able to incorporate my learnings of emotion into the earlier book, which is all about understanding. Because those two really go together. It's, uh, emotion drives us. Emotion is very important in human behavior. Actually, emotion is what mostly causes us to act. It's not logic. Logic is artificial. It was invented. It's not the way people normally think. And finally, I learned a lot. I've changed a lot in 25 years. And one thing is that I was a professor when I wrote the book. And in that time, I've become, well, much more involved in industry. I was a business executive at Apple and then at HP and at a few startups, and I've been an advisor to startups and other companies. So there's been a big change. 
and I was able to incorporate those changes in the book. With emotional design, can you give us a, an example of how that plays out with one of the designs that you either consulted or worked on? Oh, it plays out all the time. Uh, don't you ever get angry at your equipment when it doesn't work or doesn't do what you want it to do or you have no idea how to do it? Or, uh, gee, I did this yesterday, now I can't remember how to do it today. It makes you angry. Um, or it makes you feel good when things work well, when it looks neat. I know people who take their phones out all the time and caress it with their fingers. They're not using it. They're just holding it and rubbing it and turning it around. Uh, design requires emotional commitment. You know, I left that out of the first book, Chris, because I didn't know how to treat it, but we take so much pleasure in physical objects and their appearance and their feel, in their sound, sometimes in their smell. Uh, if I look at the computer that you're using in front of you, it's exquisitely designed with tremendous attention to the little details all around it that make it just so beautiful. And that makes a difference. But I, I also point out to people how how many times are you editing something and you start realizing that, oh, it hasn't been saved for a long time, oh, and you start getting nervous, but you want to finish this paragraph, right? And uh, what does your body do? Your body feels tense. That's emotion. So in the design process, where is the best place to incorporate thinking about emotional design? There is no place where you should not be thinking about emotions because we have to have empathy with the people using the equipment. We have to understand what drives them. We have to understand what they're trying to accomplish. And among other things, yeah, they have a task they want to accomplish, but they need people like to feel good. Like to feel, we like to feel we are in control and we understand what is happening. And so it's really important in the design to always give people this kind of control, to give them the feedback so they know what is happening, to let them discover, I call it discoverability, discover what actions they can do and make it easy to do it. Not, oh, I know I want to do something, but I can't remember how to do it. You get anxious. Uh, so designers always have to be thinking about the impact of their choices upon the way people behave. I agree. I think it's so true, and, and I think we get so deep into the deliverables. We're thinking about the context and we're thinking about the technology, but we're not necessarily incorporating the thinking about the emotions. Even though we have the personas, we're thinking about the users, we're empathizing with the tasks, I still think that there is a need for an emphasis on the emotions during the whole process, like you're saying. I think about the person. When I think about the whole person, I think about how they're going to react. I think about will they understand this? What might they do next? What happens if they, if they change their mind and want to go back? Uh, I think about the behavior of the persons, which automatically incorporates both the cognition, their understanding, and also their emotions. And I think also getting back to all the things that have stayed the same, you get into the psychology of everyday things and, and certainly, like you said, human behavior has stayed the same. So when we look at... That's actually what the psychology of everyday things, thank you, is why I named the book The Psychology of Everyday Things. The fundamental principles of how we interact with the world are unchanged for thousands of years and they will remain unchanged until people change. Now, Maybe people will change. We're starting to implant all sorts of weird things inside the brain and body, and maybe that will change the way we think. But until we change the 
neural circuits of the brain, those principles remain the same. And maybe even afterwards, because a lot of the principles about understanding what to be done, understanding what's happening, getting feedback, if I were a computer interacting with the world, the same principles would, would apply. Well, with mental models, because technology is changing so rapidly, I think our mental models are shifting. And I'm curious to know if you agree if that's true or not. Um, you spoke at LAUX about the different ways you can swipe the phone, uh, whether you pinch or tap once or tap twice. And so it's not necessarily all intuitive and we're continually trying to learn new things. So the mental model is somewhat shifting. The principle that people form mental models and use them to govern their behavior, that's unchanged. But what the mental model is about, what our conceptual model of the things we're interacting with is about, obviously changes when the thing we interact with changes. With automobiles, we have mental models of what the steering wheel does and the brake pedal does and the controls do, and those models change because today the, the automobile is getting more and more automated. My car doesn't want to let me out of my lane if there's another car adjacent to me. That's kind of neat. And so we're changing our mental model, and we're becoming now much more accustomed to, do I, is there a car in my right lane if I want to shift to the right? Well, I just look at the mirror, and if, if there's a car there, there's a bright light flashing at me. If there's no car there, there's no bright light. Well, so if no, no light, I go into the other lane. But... Uh, is that really safe? I mean, can I really trust the sensors in the automobile to be accurate all the time? Not really. So when my mental model is the car is very intelligent, it always tells me whether there's something in my path, that's a dangerous thing to rely on. But I would never would have had that model even a few years ago, because cars couldn't do that. So yeah, our mental models change dramatically, and the way we interact with things change, and the kinds of things we interact with change. But the notion of a mental model, that's been around a long time. And what are some of the things that you foresee will change in the next 25 years? Well, let me start with some things that will never change. We still have trouble figuring out how to work a door. That is, should we push or pull it? Do I, if I push or pull, is it on the left side or the right side? And uh, sometimes doors slide. And so distinguishing among those alternatives is remarkably hard and frustrating sometimes. That will be unchanged. We know how to do things better, it's just that I guarantee we won't. Same with light switches, big row of eight light switches. Uh, which does what? That's a mapping problem. That will be remain unchanged. Even though light switches will change, we'll have more and more lights that just automatically turn on when you enter a room and we'll have lights that sense what you want to do and we'll have lights that say, oh, you want to watch television? I'll turn down the lights. Um, and we'll then get even more annoyed because, no, no, I don't want to watch television. I just wanted to do something else. Or, I'm trying to sneak in the room and not wake up my wife, and you turn, off, you turn on all the lights, and she gets mad at me. So those things won't change. So even when the automation comes in, in some sense, the principles don't change. What will change? Well, the groom, as I said, will try to read your mind and say, oh, I know what you're trying to do, so let me turn down these lights and turn up the heat and do this and do that. And when that works well, it kind of feels good. But every so often it will get it wrong. It will feel bad. Cars will drive themselves. Uh, we'll have more and more intelligent devices with us. Uh, the kitchen will become highly automated. 
the two major places that will become automated, three major, are the kitchen, the automobile, and the entertainment center. Um, our bathroom scale will talk to our kitchen, and there'll be some sort of health monitor that will tell us, you need to be careful about what you're eating. No, don't make that while we're trying to cook. The notions of privacy are going to change dramatically. Now, I want to remind people that the notion of privacy itself is a very new notion. Uh, so this notion of complete loss of privacy is also new, but it's not as revolutionary as some people think because the notion of privacy is new. That The technology, though, provides information about us in ways never before imagined. So, yeah, lots of things weren't private before, but we didn't expect the whole world to know. And one of the problems I have is that lots of people know about things that Don Norman does, but you know, there are many Don Normans in the world, and so uh, people get upset about things that Don Norman has done, and it turns out that's not me. This worldwide communication and instant information and the inability to ever retract anything, because it doesn't matter if you say, that's wrong, and the company that has the information says, okay, we'll take it out of our database. Well, they do. And a day or two later, it's back in, because information is spread all around the world, and everybody's updating it. Uh, that's new. Every day, I learn about some new development that's, ooh, gee. Um, but clearly, it's about worldwide continuous communication. It's about wearing glasses that tell us what's going around the world. It's therefore about continual distractions that prevent us from doing our work. At the same time, there are continual enhancements that make us focus and do our work better. Same, the same technology does both at the same time. And um, automation taking over more and more, eating us at our jobs, sometimes eliminating our jobs by taking over the job from us. Genetic modifications that are going to happen, new kinds of materials where we can, for the first time, grow electronic circuits. We can grow homes and houses. 3D printing, which is really revolutionizing manufacturing. And I've even seen 3D printed homes. There are these great big machines that go back and forth across the entire plot of land, dripping concrete, as it does, and building a wonderful home structure, which can take all sorts of forms now. We used to do everything in a rectangular shape because that's how we knew how to build structures. But with 3D printing, it could be any shape and, and even cheaper and stronger than the ones we're used to. I could go on and on and on. Changes are happening at a really rapid and fascinating pace. With regards to privacy, what moral obligation do you think companies have while it pertains to users' private data? Well, I don't trust companies. And it's not because there are evil people in companies, they're not. You know, we have uh, several major companies in the United States that have more and more private information. And let me name some of them. There's Amazon and Google and Twitter and Facebook. Probably those are the major ones that uh, are changing the world. All of these companies are well-intended. They are not trying to violate personal rights but they are trying to do their business more effectively. And all of them believe firmly that, that by having more information, we can serve you better. So if Google mainly survives through advertisements, they say, people really are annoyed by advertisements. And that's because this ad comes in about something I have no interest in. Or it comes in, maybe I'm interested in the product, but not now. 
uh, I'm busy, I'm doing something else, please don't bother me. But suppose I could figure out what you really cared about and when. So I would only give you the advertisement when you really cared about it. First of all, you'd be much happier. And second, the companies will be happier too because they don't want to annoy you, they want you to buy their product. They want you to like the company. So if the advertisement came up just when I needed it, so, um, you know, I'm in the airport and I'm hungry and my plane isn't going to be for a little while. And just then my phone rings and I look at it and it says, there's a restaurant right down the way. And maybe even here's a few cents off if I buy there. And here's what, and not only that, but they serve the kind of organic healthy food that you really like. Oh, that's really nice. But that very same advertisement, when I'm rushing to get into the plane, that I would hate. So these companies feel they're helping you. And by spreading the news, by learning about what all your friends are doing around the world, it is kind of nice. Um, at the same time, the side effect is a complete loss of privacy. Now, they don't intend that, but it happens. And that's why I don't trust companies, because a company who thinks it's trying to help you, and one of its goals, of course, is to stay alive as a company, which means make money. So um, they will do things we don't want them to do. And I think the only solution is for society to get together and say, we will not allow certain things to happen. You cannot trust the companies. And it's not because they're evil or deceitful. It's because they have a different mindset. What should they be doing differently? We should have opt-in as opposed to opt-out. Right now, everything you do is completely public unless you make a big effort to run around and try to figure out where it is and, and say, no, this is not allowed. Look, opt-out versus opt-in, in theory, says, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference because in both cases you have full permission. You, you authorize what can be done. But in practice, it makes a huge difference because few people are going to take the time and effort to go through and do the opt-in or opt-out, let alone, in many cases, Facebook, an example. It's really hard to figure out where the permissions are. So making it easier to find the permissions, um, Well, how about out. making it unnecessary to find the permissions? How about maybe with the first time that it's going to post something or use something, it says, I can't do this until you tell me it's permissible. And that box also allowed me to say, uh, permissible or not this one time, or never, or always. I've always thought that the computer systems ought to have a special place for notifications. And I tried to do that when I was at Apple, but I couldn't get any, nobody would listen to me. But I, instead of notifications popping up on your screen, there ought to be a special place. Now actually in the new operating system, Apple has done that, but nobody seems to use it. One place we can go look to where everything is. That would be wonderful. Find one place instead of going into each system. And it annoys you, doesn't it? It does. See? Emotions come into play all the time. You talk about the system, and I, I think that's so critical to look at the entire system instead of just the parts. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because I think it's, it's something that's really critical and it's a mindset that we need to change not only for the designer, the developer, or the business manager, but for all of us to be working more as a complete system. I looked around the room we're sitting in, because I always like to do that when I'm asked a question about systems. For example, 
Yeah, we don't exist in a world of isolated events and isolated actions. We live in a world where everything is connected. It's a system. And so proper design has to understand that, hey, it's a system, we should interconnect everything. We should, uh, we should think about the way that one component interacts with another component. And it's remarkably difficult. First of all, because usually the designers are charged with bringing out the new product or getting it out on time or doing this little piece. Uh, you're not told, think about all the interactions that might happen and all the other things that are part of the system we're doing and you know, make sure it's harmonious and smooth. That's not how we're ever given instructions or for that matter, we don't have the ability to do that. But because it's difficult, it's difficult to get all the people in synchrony. Light switches are often a mess to try to understand and know which controls what because the architect designs this, the interior designers design that, uh, the, arch the electricians are called in at the last moment to finish wiring the place and they don't understand how it's going to be used so they do the best job they can, but it makes the system aspects horrible. So I think the next big challenge in design is to try to figure out how to make the systems work, because that's what makes our life pleasant and smooth. And that's a hard job. And actually, it's a hard job that I love, because uh, I like challenges. And so that's, that's my challenge. How do we make the systems smooth? Hmm. That's an interesting new book, isn't it? Let's simplify our lives. That's a good title. What does the roadmap look like to helping companies adapt to that different mindset of looking at the system as a whole? A company is an artificial entity. Companies don't look. Companies don't have ideas. Companies don't have policies. It's people in those companies. Large companies are complex entities. You and I are having this wonderful conversation, the two of us. If we added a third or fourth person, it might actually make it better or it might make it worse. It don't know. It has to do with the, the unique characteristics of those extra people. We work well as people in small social groups. You get 10 or 20 people in a room and it's very hard to do anything productive. If you have an hour meeting, that means everybody gets to talk for three minutes apiece, and it's hard to organize. And companies have thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. There are companies with a million people. So how do you organize and how do you structure? And who speaks for the company when you say a company ought to have a certain way of behaving? Well, no, there is no such thing as a company. There are all these different groups. and the, the very senior executives could establish a policy and there's a big division off on the side that completely violates the policy. When I was an executive, a vice president of a large company, there were problems in my division and I could never figure out what was really going on because there were too many people. I had 250 people in my division and how could I really tell in this little seven person group where there were really disagreements and difficulties who was right and who was wrong or what the real issue was? I think it's, it's kind of false to say the company ought to behave better. I mean, it's true, but it's not as easy as, it's, as a simple sentence sounds. Well, you have the executive stakeholders, you have marketing and sales, you have designers, developers, yes, manufacturers. But we, but we also have, and not only do we have the all users. these different groups, but first of all, everybody has a boss. You go all the way up to the CEO and you say, well, that's the person in charge. No, the CEO has a boss. It's the the board of directors. And 
But the board of directors have bosses, and uh, they are actually uh, being directed by the people they work for or report to. And on top of that, there's what's, there's a reward structure of the company. So what does a company reward me for? Well, the company might say, I want really better products. But in the end, the company really needs to be making money. And so quite often we, we reward the executives on their ability to make more money for the company. Therefore, if executives know they're being rewarded on their profits, they will do all they can to improve their profits. But the reward structure where you're getting rewarded for the biggest you know, sales and profits, that makes people do irrational things. How do you reward people for doing good for society, for the community, for their workers, and for the company? Well, no one has figured out the formula yet. You coined the term user experience. Can you talk a little bit about your original definition and whether or not you think people are interpreting it the same today? There's a really interesting um, fashion cycle with words. And so words come in and out of fashion, and as they come in into fashion, everybody starts adopting it. They're, they often just use the word with no understanding of what its original meaning was. So, um, I introduced the phrase user experience, and I'll come back to that. It, and it has been widely accepted and misused. Interaction design um, is widely accepted and misused. Innovation, creativity, uh, design thinking, all of these terms suddenly get popular and popularized and really badly misused. So then people, therefore, throw them away and say, oh no, we don't want to talk about that. The story I tell is when I was at Apple, uh, quite often I was seeing that the user experience of the computer was deteriorating with time. And that was because of the priority judgments made by the, design, by the product team. Uh, we're reaching the deadline, we haven't finished everything, let's sit down and, and prioritize all the things left to do and we'll just do the high priority ones, we'll keep going till we run out of time. And the user, the interaction for people was suffering because it was always low priority. And so when you divide things up into small little parts, the small parts often are of low priority. But if you were to realize that, no, 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 the entire experience is deteriorating and that's a major problem, then it would have reached a higher priority. System thinking is required. The, reason, the whole reason they have the computer is to get a task done, and that task, the ability to get the task done was dramatically suffering because of all these little problems that were in the way. And each little problem was not very important, but the totality was huge. So that's what I wanted for user experience. And Somehow today, people think user experience has to do with websites or something, and interaction design is all about websites, and uh, each little field that does something thinks it's all about their little part of the field. No, it's about the whole thing. When I buy a computer, how do I learn about it? How do I purchase it at the store? What kind of a box does it come in? Can I actually fit the box into my car? When I open it, is it easy to figure out what I should do to get it going? That's what user experience is about, and that's been lost. If you were to give, give some advice to a young designers today, what would you tell them? First of all, to always try to see the big picture. Don't get stuck in your own specialized discipline. But if you're asked to do a job, try to understand where it fits in the large picture. And that makes you better at doing the job. Second, you should always push yourself. I, I, there's a friend of mine, a management consultant called Tom Peters, and he, he actually had a philosophy that I really loved, which is, 
if you're really comfortable in your job, you're in the wrong job. You should always be pushing yourself and oh, you should always be unsure of yourself and not sure that you can really handle it. Yeah, you should always be looking for challenges. Uh, always be learning new things. Always be trying new things. When you're trying to select a job or a profession, choose something you really love. Don't choose the one that pays the most or don't choose the one that you think you ought to do. Same with taking courses at school. The same with doing anything. Don't do what you think people think you ought to do. Do what you love to do. I always try to look at the big picture and think about new things that need to be done and I go into areas that nobody is doing. And it's, that's dangerous and risky and unsettling. But that's where the breakthroughs come. So if you look at all of the great innovations that's ever happened, or even the minor innovations that's happened, it's because somebody has had a new way of viewing things and persisted and continued. And then slowly the world started to understand and then suddenly this person was a great person with great foresight and great insight and has changed the world. And But wow, it took 10 years maybe. If you believe in something, then you should continue it. What would you like to be your biggest contribution to society? It's the students that I've taught and the wonderful work they are now doing in a wide variety of fields. And second, the people I've, I've uh, influenced through my books. And uh, nothing gives me more pleasure than to have people come up to me and say, I read your book 20 years ago and it made me change the field I'm in and thank you very much. That actually happened to me last night at the talk I gave. A number of people came up. One person brought a book they had read of mine in 1960s. Several people brought some of the old books and said, I took your course at UC San Diego 30 years ago and they still had the book. That was amazing. And that's my biggest contribution. It's the, the people I leave behind me. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was wonderful talking to you. You're quite welcome. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful conversations are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. At WeWork, we consistently strive to make meeting new people and having interesting conversations natural and effortless. From the design of our workspace to the events at our buildings, we do everything we can to support the idea that if one of us is successful, we all benefit. Every WeWork location is staffed with community managers who work directly with members to understand their business needs, struggles, and growth plans, and connect them to other members who can help. Events are an integral part of the WeWork experience, from product launches to elevator pitches. Whether you're asking for advice, looking for product feedback, or just meeting like-minded entrepreneurs, WeWork.com is a seamless extension to the community. For more information, go to WeWork.com. That's WeWork.com. UX Radio is produced by Laura Fedorov. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to UX-Radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.